Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, so we're going to go in Daniel chapter 9 tonight. Uh, tonight we're going to call this the end of captivity. And if you're joining us uh, on this recording later on in the week, hey, God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And um, the, way, the way I want to begin is this way. How many of you have ever been to an expensive buffet? I mean expensive, like, like it's, it's cost a pretty penny. Okay, so here's, here's my question because... I personally won't go to an expensive buffet. I will go to a buffet, but I, I just, if I was younger, how many remember when you were younger, you could eat like nobody's business? Remember that? And then as you got older, you, you just didn't have that appetite. Anybody like where I'm at right now? I remember I used to be able to eat a large pizza when I was 20, like nothing. And I could eat after that too. But now I eat two pieces of pizza and I'm like, I'm full. Anybody relate to that one? It, isn't it terrible? It's the worst. I mean, I well, what happened in my life? Well, thinking of a buffet, you know, if you spend a lot of money on a buffet, please tell me that you'd be like me if I spent the money on buffet. You, you know, they always bring you to the salad part first, right? How many of you, like me, if I spend a lot of money on a buffet, I'm skipping right over the salad. Anybody? Be, okay, let me rephrase it. How many of you would stop at the salad and load up on salad? No, 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 lettuce, you're spending a lot of money on lettuce, you know, so, but God bless you if you do. No, I'm just joking. I would, I, I would skip right over it. I'll go right for everything else that costs more money, that has substance to it, you know, that had a mother, stuff like that, it, because that's what I'm going to eat. I'll, I'll load up on all that kind of stuff, but I'm not going to it's me, it's me talking. I'm not going to waste my money on, on all the preliminaries, on the salad and this, that. I'm going right to the heavy hitting stuff. Well, when I was studying this chapter here, chapter 9, that's how I felt. I was reading the first, you know, like I, th- I think it's about uh, 23 verses. And, and I'm thinking, you know, we've, we've been, we have been hitting hard on the Antichrist lately, have we not? We're hard. And so it hit, chapter 9 hits hard again by verse 24. It comes in strong on the Antichrist. But the first 23 verses don't hit strong at all. Don't even, don't even really touch that whatsoever. And I was feeling like that buffet, like I, I'm going to just jam through the first 23 verses because it's just salad. And then, and then I'm going to get us through fast and I'm going to get us to like the crab legs and, and the and the prime rib and everything else, verse 24, Antichrist stuff. You follow what I'm saying right now? And then something happens as you start to read the chapter, and I've taught through Daniel multiple times in my life, then you're, and some of you know what I mean by this, your, your, your spidey Bible senses kick in, right? As you're reading the chapter, and then you read it again and again, and, and pretty soon it starts to pop, and it starts to jump out at you, and you're feeling like, how can I jump, how can I move fast through verses 1 through 23 when there's so much in 1 through 23? I can't just zoom over to Antichrist stuff and skip over this, so I broke the chapter into two weeks, okay? And, and that's where we're at, because I thought, there, there's just too much here. So we're going to go... Tonight, from verse 1 to verse 19, because I just feel like it is loaded. It's loaded with uh, 
good teaching, not information. Remember, Jesus didn't say, I came to give you information. I came to give you life, right? And so these, the Bible has life. So we're going to pick up Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, cover 19 verses tonight. We'll do some cross-referencing that I think are very important. So verse 1 in it says this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Now, if you remember, and you maybe you don't, but it's okay. In Daniel 8, Daniel took us back into Babylon again with Belshazzar, if you remember that. He had already been conquered. Belshazzar was conquered. Babylon was conquered. The Persians in power. But in chapter 8, he took us back to them. Now in chapter 9, Daniel brings us back up to date. He brings us to Darius, who's the Medo-Persian Empire, but he's the king over the Medes, and these are the ones who conquered the Babylonians. So now we're back here, up to date with where we're at in time. Now, it says in verse 1, in the first year of Darius. Now, this is giving us a, a date, the time frame of when this is. Because we know historically, we saw in chapter 5, but we know historically the date when the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians. That was October 12, 539 B.C. So now the Persians are in power. And if we're in the first year of Darius of the Persians in power, you move the clock forward, 539, this means this is probably 538 B.C. at this time in history. Now let's clock that now. Daniel was taken from um, Jerusalem, from Israel, in the deportation in 605 B.C. Now the clock's ticking. And if this is the first year of the uh, Persian king, of the Persians in power, 538 B.C., that means 62 plus 5, 67 years have gone by. If Daniel was around 15 years of age when he was deported, you take 67 plus 15. How old does that make Daniel here and there? About 82 years old. So Daniel, he's an, a really old guy at this time. Can anyone relate? No, don't raise your hand whatsoever. <laughs> but, but let me talk to um, about age because I want to give... Uh, I want to show you what the Bible says about these things so we understand that completely. Keep your marker right here. And would you turn to Psalm 92, please? Turn to Psalm 92. Because there's something really interesting that the psalmist says about this, about age. Because Daniel now is an 82-year-old man, thereabouts. Now, when you're in Psalm 92, say, hey, I'm there. Okay, good, you're there. Now... Um, I'm going to read verses 12, 13, and 14. And it says this, The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. Say old age. Old age. Very important statement. They shall be full of sap and very green. doesn't mean if you're old, you're a sap. It doesn't mean that, okay? <laughs> and <laughs> bad, Jim, bad. And, and very, green, very green. Now, if you caught any of what's written in there, it says, 
the righteous person, not just anybody, not just anybody that's older. No, no, no. It qualifies it. He says the righteous person in old age is going to be like a what? Like a palm tree. Now, that's a really cool statement. And I remember when I first read a teaching on this decades ago, uh, the writer pointed out things that I didn't know about palm trees, and now I do know about them, that have you ever, you never seen those long, thin palm trees? In the biggest of storms, in the, in the massive winds, those palm trees can bend. They can even bend all the way to touch the ground. Did you know that? And they can come right back up again. And the reason they can do that is because a palm tree is different than a regular, than most trees. Because most trees are alive on the exterior of it, but they're more, they're dead on the inside. I mean, when we went up to Big Pine area scouting out a men's camp out, we saw trees snapped in half by snow avalanches this past winter because they're dead on the inside. They can't bend. But a palm tree is different. A palm tree is alive on the inside. And so because it's alive on the inside, it can bend. You ever seen the roots of a palm tree? You ever seen when those taken up? The palm tree roots have all, they're like little, little spider roots. Yeah, exactly. There are so many of them. And they just grip in there. So it's not going to be uprooted that easily. And it's not going to snap. It's going to bend, bend, bend. And it's not going uh, to break uh, very easily. So he is saying to us that as we age, and if we live righteously, and he added, if we're planted in the house of God, that we're going to flourish like a palm tree. And the word flourish is a cool word. It means to sprout, and it means to blossom. Now you take that, and he's telling us, even in our old age, if we live righteously, we dwell in the house of God, and live for him, we're going to sprout, and we're going to blossom, even in old age. Daniel is how, thereabouts how old again? about 82 and he's still cranking away isn't he he's still he's a very important guy in this in this persian empire and god is still using this guy mightily at age 82 now let me say this about that you will hear me say periodically that all of us who are getting older we are now missionaries to a younger generation have you ever heard me say that i think and i believe in that very strongly very strongly that the next generation coming up, we have to cultivate them. We have to pour into them because you and I will not be around as long as they'll be around. And so the next generation of church leaders and church people, they have to be cultivated, they have to be poured into. Now, with that said, let me tell you what I, what I don't mean and I don't want anyone to ever assume. Don't assume that I'm saying that us old people are obsolete because then I'd have to shine the light on myself. That's funny? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, but it's true. But here's the deal. Here's what you have to understand. Who are, those of us who are older now, yeah, we're missionaries to younger generation. But the younger generation needs us. They need our wisdom. They need our experience. Because we have a lot to offer. They have, the younger generation is filled with energy and innovation, are they not? They understand how to reach the generation out there. I don't understand that. I mean, every time they do something new in the office and they're in their absence, I'm like, I have no idea. 
I have no clue how to do these things whatsoever. But they know how to work it. They know how to do all this kind of stuff. But they need my experience. That staff needs my wisdom. And, they, and in church, they need your experience and your wisdom. They need you at key positions. They need you to coach them how to do things. Do you know how many young generation up-and-coming Christians, they didn't have anybody to guide them growing up, and they look, they look for people to guide them. They hunt for that. They want that. They may not seem like they want that, but they do. They do. And so we need the combo of both. So you need to understand, as you walk with God, as you flourish in the house of God, as you walk righteously, my gosh, you're just going to get better and better and better as you age. And young people, guess what? You may think it's a long way away for me. I thought that too. And you know what I like to say? I was 21, then I blinked, and now I'm in my 60s. And it just goes that fast. Any amens on that one right there? It just goes very fast. So remember that. Remember that. You can flourish all the way through your life. You may not have the energy you once had, but guess what? You got the wisdom, and you got the experience that the younger generation needs to avoid making so many uh, needless mistakes in their life. Does that make sense? Yeah? It's a balance of both. Okay, let's go back to Daniel 9. Now, verse 2 says this. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years. Whoa! Which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. As the word of the Lord, Jeremiah. The prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 Years Now, first bullet point in your notes, and that's this. Daniel is a Bible guy. Question, does Daniel have a Bible? And the answer is, no, he doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't have what you and I have. This is Old Testament, and they have scrolls of these things, right? Now, I want you to think about that. Daniel has a scroll, or scrolls, possibly. So Daniel, this means that when he was deported and he was taken out of Israel in 605 B.C., he probably took some scrolls with him. He probably took the scrolls that he had with him all the way back there. And so we know that Daniel uh, is a Bible guy. Think about what this means. He's studying Jeremiah, that scroll. Now think about that. He has seen the Babylonians come, siege Jerusalem, destroy the temple, people taken, he's taken, has that discouraged his faith at all to throw away the scriptures? And the answer is no. He has stayed strong in the word of God. He has stayed right there with God. He's not shaken by the destruction of Jerusalem at all. He's still studying. He's still a, what we would call a Bible guy. Now, bullet point, secondly, and underneath that verse, and that's this. Daniel reads and understands that their captivity is ending. He's reading in verse 2. He's observing the years, and we'll get to that in just a second. But he's understanding that the captivity they're in is coming to an end. Let me give you a quick sidebar on that that I think is very important. God authenticates his word in history, does he not? Let me say it again. God authenticates his word in history. Don't, wouldn't you expect him to do that? God says this is going to happen, and guess what? It does it has happened. So God authenticates the word, his word, with things in history. We have been studying all these prophecies of Daniel. You and I are looking backwards in time. Daniel is looking forward in time. And all these things that Daniel is prophesying, we know they already came to pass, right? 
We've seen this. So God is authenticating his word in history. That gives us greater faith knowing that there is a big God in heaven. Amen to that one? Now, he's reading Jeremiah in verse 2. And as he reads Jeremiah, he's putting two and two together. And what he's putting together is this. He knows that we left in 605. He knows that. He knows it's 538 B.C. He knows it's been 67 years since the captivity began. But he's also knowing from Jeremiah's scroll that the captivity will last how long? 70 years. So he knows 67 years now, according to the scroll, have passed. And he knows it lasts 70 years. So he knows how, much, how many years do they have left in, in Babylon. They got three years left. And that captivity is going to end. Now, can we dive deeper into that? Say yes, because you're stuck with me tonight, okay? <laughs> now, let's check this out. Keep your marker right here. Go to your left a little bit. And you're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, let's see how this whole 70-year thing plays out. Jeremiah chapter 25. When you're there, say, yeah, I'm there. Oh, you're not there? That's okay. We, we can wait. We can wait a little bit. Don't go too far to your left, but you'll run into Jeremiah pretty good. Good, good now? Okay. Um, now look at verse, chapter 25, and we're going to jump a little bit here, so be ready. Verse 12. Jeremiah says this under the inspiration of the Spirit. Then it will be when 70 years, say 70 years, 70 years. are completed. I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord for their iniquity, in the land of the Chaldeans. And I will make it an everlasting desolation. Now Daniel's reading, and he, I know he's read this. He says 70 years are going to be completed. Something's going, it's going to last 70 years. Now, Jeremiah says more about this. Turn to Jeremiah, a few verses to the right, uh, chapters to the right, chapter 29. Now this, we're, you're going to read a verse or two in this section that I'm going to read that is very well known to probably almost every person in this room. But we typically take it out of context, and I think it's okay because you could take the application of it. But let's look at the context of these verses and what they're saying. This is Jeremiah, and he's writing a letter to the Jews in captivity. This is something here. And look at, uh, let's just take 4 through 11. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Huh. So he's writing to the exiles in Babylon. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Do you know why he's saying to do that? Because they're going to be there 70 years. So you might as well live your life while you're there. Now, verse 7. Here's one of my favorite Jeremiah verses. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. In other words, wherever you work at, whatever your job is, wherever you're planted, do good there. Because 
If that place does good, guess who it's good for? You. So don't sabotage where you work at. Do the best you can do because in its welfare, you will find welfare. I mean, it's very logical, makes sense. Verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams which they dream. In other words, there are lying prophets, are there not? He says, don't listen to these people. Verse 9. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, here it is. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. He's saying, look, you're going to go there for 70 years. And when the 70 years are done, then I'm going to bring you back from that place. So this is what Daniel is reading. This is what he's understanding. Let's read on. Because these are the verses now that you will be familiar with. For I know the plans, verse 11, that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Anybody heard that, read that verse before, know that verse, have it up on your fridge, stuff like that? Then you will call upon me and, I will, and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Huh. Uh, verse, uh, oh, I've gone past it. Okay, let me stop right there. So we typically take verse 11 and make that like God's got good plans for me, right? That's what we do. Okay, but you put it in full context now and you realize the verse within context is talking about people who are in captivity, people who have been deported there, the, the Jews, and the 70 years is up and he's giving them hope that, look, this is going to end and I have a good future for you. Babylon is not your future. Back home in Jerusalem, in Israel, that's your future. That's who he's talking to. That's the whole context of these verses there. But notice he says, it will be 70 years of captivity. Question, why 70 years? Why not 90? Why does God choose 70? Why not 170? Why not 270? Why not 1,000? Why 70 years? You know, there's a reason. There's an absolute reason for 70 years. Keep your, uh, you have your marker already. Turn to 2 Chronicles 36. Go to your left, quite a bit to your left. 2 Chronicles, if you go into Kings... You've gone too far. 2 Chronicles 36. I'll give you a little bit of time to get there. When you're there, say, I'm there. Okay. 2 Chronicles 36. Now watch this. Verse 18. All the articles of the house of God great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Now, look up at me. He's describing that once he seized and took Jerusalem, he brought all the articles from the temple. He took it all. This is under the reign of the last king there in Judah, and that is Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last king. Zedekiah would not listen to Jeremiah, who's prophesying in Jerusalem, Ezekiel is a contemporary. He's prophesying the same things in Babylon already. He's there. And so he's not listening. And he's being warned. You better do this. He's not going to do it. And so here comes Nebuchadnezzar. He sieges a city. 
Zedekiah gets his family. They run. You'll find it in different, uh, different Old Testament letters. They run. He's caught on the plains of Jericho. If you've been to Israel, you know Jerusalem sits high, 4,000 feet. You know you travel downward. You know Jericho is down towards the Jordan Valley right there. They catch him there. They, the last thing they do, because he wouldn't listen and listen, is they take him, they watch, he, he watches his children being killed by the Babylonians, and as soon as they kill all his family, they blind him. And that's the last thing in Zedekiah's life. They take him as a prisoner back to Babylon. Now, this is all happening at this time. Now look at verse 19. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Doesn't Nehemiah go back and rebuild the wall? This is when it's broken down. The temple's also destroyed. And in Ezra, we find 50,000 Jews go back to rebuild it. And burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Here it is. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Why 70 years? Because the land, the land. See, there's an Old Testament law that these people are living under. You find it in uh, Leviticus 25, 4-7. And one of the laws that stated back then was that the land that they're utilizing, growing their crops, everything, every seventh year, you have to let that land rest. You don't cultivate it. You don't replant. You don't do anything. You just trust that whatever grows, grows. Leave the, let the, leave the land alone. They go into captivity primarily because the land is owed rest. If it's 70 years, then how many years do they not obey that law? 490. 490 years they did not let the land rest every seventh year. And so God says, guess what? You owe 70 years. And that's one of the big reasons they went 70 years into captivity. Question, if God is concerned about land rest, do you think he's worried about our rest? I think so. I think so. How many of you are recovering workaholics like me? Raise your hand. Oh, there's only like four of us. Wow, good. Mm-hmm. See, God wants us to rest and recoup. God wants us to take, you know, take a day a week and just rest and do fun things, do things that are not work-related. See, our, our, our typical life is busy, 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 right? To-do lists, come home from work, get busy with other things, right? And God wants us to learn how to find rest. In our life. I'm one of the worst at it. I'm way better now, way better. But God wants to rest. If he's serious about land rest, then he's serious about us. Do you know why in the Ten Commandments, God puts in one of the commandments, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy at the day of rest? You know why? Because in, in Egypt, for 400 some years, did they ever have even one day of rest? They never did. Once they became slaves, they never had a day of rest. They had none. So God puts into place a Sabbath rest for them that you're to rest your life and you're to just enjoy however you enjoy. Now, let's go back to Daniel chapter 9. Now, verse 3. 
So I gave attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, he says, so I gave my attention. Now, it's an interesting word, attention. It means this. It means the face, but with that, it means the part that turns. It means like this. This is what it means. It means when he gave his attention, it means he turned his face, meaning I give you my, if you were to, if Noah, if you were to say, hey, Jim, to turn my, I'm giving you my full attention. And that's what that means, that he's giving God his full attention. So he's seeking God because now he's getting these visions. They're alarming to him, and he wants to understand what's going on. So he begins to pray. Now, in your notes, I have five things in the prayer of Daniel that I just want you to fill in fast, and we'll just keep, we'll keep running. And the first one is the prayer consisted of concentration. That's your first fill in there, the five. In other words, he gave, he gave his attention, so he's concentrating. The second one is passion. That's supplication. Yeah, supplication carries an idea of giving, you know, it involves the whole being. And then there's self-denial. That's the fasting part that he talks about. Then there's humility. He mentioned sackcloth and ashes. That's sorrow. That's humility. That's an important part of prayer. And then the last one is honesty. Because he confesses the sins and he doesn't offer up any excuses. Let me ask you a question. Have you finally come to the place in your life where you tell yourself the truth about yourself? No, really. It's easy to nod yes, huh? But if you're going to become a, a real growing person, you have to tell yourself the truth about yourself. We all know that it's easy to tell somebody else the truth about them, right? That's really easy. I mean, we got a list, don't we? But to be able to tell ourselves the truth about ourselves... That's a big deal. When I counsel people, that's one of the things I push hard on. Because it's so easy to look at the speck in somebody else's eye and not look at the big old log in our own eye. I mean, we have a culture that lives that way. But if we want to grow, we have to tell ourselves the truth about ourselves and whatever area of life, because that fits into all pockets of our life. Tell ourselves the truth about ourselves. Now, let's move on. Verse 5. Uh, verse 5 and 6. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Now, notice verse 5 says, we have sinned, right? Look at verse 6. He says, we have not listened, right? Okay, let me, let me kind of differentiate between these two just very quickly. He says, we have sinned. In other words, you know, we've done things we shouldn't do, correct? Okay, then he says, we have not listened. In other words, we have not done things that you told us to do that we should be doing, right? You see the two, the distinction right there? Okay, very quickly, very quickly, move fast with me. Go to the first book of the New Testament. Go to Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Got to move a little faster because I did fall behind tonight. Sorry, and I don't mean to move real fast, but to fit in the time slot. Now, keep that thought I just gave you. <clears throat> now watch what Jesus says in Matthew 23 and verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and uh, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe uh, uh, mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, 
justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, Jesus is affirming tithing, by the way. Some people say, well, there's no tithing in the New Testament. He just affirmed it, okay? He said, you tithe and you've done right. And if it comes out of the words, out of the mouth of the God-man, I think it's right, right? Okay, so we, let's not argue with him, right? Okay, but he says, he's talking about the omission. He says, you're doing all these things and that's good, but you're neglecting, you're omitting this stuff that you should be doing. Those are what we, this is where you make the distinction between sins of commission, you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, and sins of omission. You're not doing things that God says to do you should be doing. You see the difference? You see the two right there? Now go back to Daniel again. That's where I say, he says, we have sinned. We're doing things we shouldn't be doing. He says, we have not listened, verse 6. In other words, we're not doing things that you told us to do we should be doing. And so there's sins of commission and there's sins of omission. We typically focus on the sins of commission. Well, I did something that I shouldn't do, right? And we neglect all the things. Well, God said to do this, this, and this. And I'm like, oh yeah, I've kind of omitted that. Yeah, that's just as big a sin as the other ones. So we want to do what God is telling us to do. Amen to that one? Now verse 7 and 8. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But to us open shame, as it is to this day. To the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against uh, you. Verse 8. Open shame, say open shame, belongs to us. O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Huh. So Daniel, in his intercession, as he's praying to God about Jerusalem and the men, he, he says, we are living, the people in Judah, the men of, of Israel there, are living in open shame. What does that mean? Open shame. Shame, that Hebrew word right there, is the idea of disappointment. They're living back home in disappointment. I want you to think about that. Israel, as a nation, were they delivered by the mighty hand of God from Egypt? Did they see God bring down all those plagues? Did they see a Red Sea part? Did they experience the angel of death pass over because the blood on the doorpost and lintel? Did they experience manna from heaven? Did they experience water come from a rock? Did they experience the parting of the Jordan River again and, and then God and then march around Jer Jericho and the walls come down? Ha has Jerusalem become the center of Yahweh worship for the entire world? Yes. They've experienced all that. And now, their life right now is defeat. They're displaced. The temple is destroyed. Everything that was supposed to be the way they're living is gone. And so now they live in shame. And they live in disappointment. It was supposed to be this way, but because of bad decisions after bad decisions, I'm going to do this versus this. Now they live in open shame in their life. That's what he's talking about. Can that happen to a Christian? You better believe it can. Sure it can. Sure it can. Now, verse 9. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. Don't forget that. For we have rebelled against Him. Nor have we 
obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him, verse 12. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done in Jerusalem. Verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, second time he said that, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. Okay. Bullet point in your notes. Here's this one. Daniel acknowledges that Israel was warned. In other words, we were warned. When you write that in, now look up. In verse 11, he talks about the curse. Twice after that, he talks about the law of Moses, verse 11, and then it's written in there again, law of Moses, and verse 13. Okay. Did they know? They absolutely knew. They absolutely knew. Okay. The law of Moses was given about roughly 900 years before this moment. When that law was given, there was this glorious moment in time where they were separated, six tribes here, six tribes there, and the, the, the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 are uttered. How many remember those passages? They're, they're, these, they're being uttered. If you do this, this, and this, and this, blessings upon your life. But, if you don't follow that, but do this, 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 and this, curses will be upon your life. And they're, wa- and they're hearing all this. They, they know all these things are taking place. And so when we read, as Daniel's talking, as Daniel's talking to God, he's reading it like a playbook saying, guys, we knew this. We knew that if we sinned and if we did this and we didn't obey God, this is what was going to happen. And it did happen. It's a playbook. And Daniel is telling them, See, they lived under the uh, if-then. If you do this, then this is going to happen. Now, there's still plenty of truth to the if-then, right? Plenty of truth to that. We call them consequences to our decisions and to our actions in life. Now, look at verse 15. I like verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is written this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. Now, now, bullet point in your notes. Daniel is a rememberer. Daniel is a rememberer. Now, what do I mean by that? He says in verse 15, he says, O Lord God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt, what is he remembering? What is he remembering? He just said it. That God brought us out of Egypt, Right? He remembers that. He remembers the whole event right there. Now, <clears throat> he's remembering what God has done in the past. 
And because he remembers what God has done in the past, that builds his faith to believe that God, what he's done in the past, he can do in the? That's right. Because remember, he used the word deliver. You delivered us in the past. We're stuck in Babylon now. Therefore, I know you can deliver us now. You follow the thinking? And so therefore, he's using his faith recollection. And all of us need to do this. Every one of us, if we sat down and let you talk, you could probably name one, two, or three probably pretty good events where you remember where God did something big in your life, where God delivered, where this happened. Can you remember those things? Good. You don't want to forget them. Because when you get to roadblocks in life in the present, you can go back on your recollection and say, well, God did this in the past, and God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So therefore, if he did it back then, he can do it again right now. Any amens on that? So being a remember is big. When people forget what God has done in the past, we lose faith. We, we, can, we can just drop the whole ball and say, forget the whole thing. But when you remember what God has done, then you know, well, if he did it in the past, he can do it in my future. Amen to that one? He can do it again, man. Now, verse 9, verse 16. Let me drive it home. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquity uh, of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Verse 17. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your name, for your sake, O oh Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Can you hear the cry of his heart? Can you hear the pain of his heart? You can feel it. Verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, exclamation point. Open your eyes and see our desolations. And the city, which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. What did he just say? This is a big deal in your prayer life. He's saying, we're asking you to do certain things. We're praying to you not based on any what? Not based on our righteousness. He's already named it. We're just a bunch of sinners. Did you catch that? It's not based on our merit, but it's based on what? I can pray to you because you are what? Merciful and compassionate. Now, never forget that because what you and I get stuck in, we get stuck in the thinking, I can only come to God when I get all the dominoes falling right, right? Right? That's just not so. Because if I think that I have to get all the dominoes to fall right, I will never come to God in, for anything in my life. Because I can always find something I've done wrong. I can always find, well, I didn't do this, and I messed up there, and this and that. No. Here, here's the big deal of this point. The thing that gives a person confidence to come to God is not how you and I get it right or wrong, but on God's character. He who comes to God must know that he is. Is what? He's compassionate. He's merciful. He is forgiving. He is loving. How many of you here, your kid, you had kids, and have you ever had it where they were just a stinker all day long? And then you still did something good for them at the end of the day. Anybody ever do that? I have. 
Why, how could you do that? They were a stinker. Because you have compassion. You have love. That's your character. And then you take that and think about God. Well, God has that and more, does he not? I've been a stinker all this week. God says, well, I still want to hear what you want. I still want to know what's on your heart. I still want you to come and talk to me. That's what he's saying right here. Isn't that a great thing? It's one of the greatest things. I think that's so awesome. Now, let me finish it off. Verse 19. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and take action. For your own name, oh, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. What's the focus of everything Daniel is saying now? It's God. So whose glory matters? It's all the glory. Do you know that everything you and I do, our behavior, our actions, what we say, what we do, everything, every interaction, how we work, how we interact in marriage, everything we should be living for the glory of God, how we do our homework, how we respond to people, everything is for the glory of God. Is it not? Everything should bring glory to God. We should always be concerned like Moses was, always concerned for the glory of God. Man, I grew up in the persuasion I was brought up in. I, I grew up, I knew the Lord's Prayer backwards and forward. Anybody know that prayer? Yeah, I knew it, okay. In fact, when I made my first Holy Communion, I was really stressed because I didn't know the Hail Mary. <laughs> and I thought, oh gosh, please don't have them give me Hail Mary. Then I got to go up to the altar and lie and act like I said it. <laughs> and I'll be back in the confessional again hoping he gives me our fathers. So I... I'm not, I was like nine. Can you imagine the pressure? Well, thank God, the, the priest gave me 10 Our Fathers. So I go, whew, I don't have to sin against God in front of the altar right there. Because, you know, nine-year-olds have a lot of sin, you know. And then some. But I said the Our Fathers. I want, I want us to finish by all of us saying, if you know it, the Our Father, let's reset it together, I'll lead us off. And I want to just say one thing at the end of it, okay? Here we go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power. They're like, I have messed up. Amen. But notice how the glory is near the end. And the glory. And that's important. Because we live for the glory of God. Everything in our life is we live for the glory of God. To bring glory to his name. His name. And that's where Daniel finishes at verse 19. It's for you. He says, your own sake your city, your people, your name. It's your name. It's all that matters. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this chapter. Thank you for all the things Daniel said. He's pouring his heart out in prayer. And he says a lot of great things. And you hear the heart of an 82-year-old man or thereabouts concerned for his city, understanding that they're about to go back knowing where the sins have taken place and what set them there in the first place. He's a man of great wisdom. He's a man of stature. But he's a man with all the stature in his life, he still humbles himself before 
his, his, his God and is concerned about his God's glory as we should be too. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.